When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. If you've been around the Black Expat for a while, you'll know that Dana Saxon isn't new to these parts. As a regular contributor on the site, Dana has provided an honest, authentic, and sometimes difficult thoughts on the reality of living as an expat. Writer, disruptor, nomad, activist, and definitely awkward black girl, any of these terms could be used to describe her. She's especially passionate about black representation and power, and this is only amplified while she's been living internationally. She launched Ancestors Unknown as a way to disrupt history education and really challenge the notions of identity and heritage especially for those from marginalized communities. Get introduced to Dana in this episode and then check out some of her writings on theblackexpat.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Amanda. Man, I'm so excited. I've got you on the podcast. You are one of the people I call a black expat OG. Uh, <laughs> you, you may not know this. So I have no idea. for people who are listening in, Dana has been one of our earliest contributors on the black expat site. And so if you haven't had a chance, Dana, I think is someone that we consider a really authentic writer who has just shared her experiences living in the Netherlands. And, you know, currently she's based in the UK. And so I always promote her writing and we were very fortunate to do some recording with her back in 2017, which is kind of crazy. That's been that long. That is crazy. <laughs> but, um, you know, she, where she talks about her work and, and, and share some of her thoughts. And so I am excited to have her here. And so for our audience who doesn't know Dana, tell us, tell everyone where you're at and, and, and why you're there. All right. Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate that introduction, too, because I did not know that I was considered an OG. I feel like I'm just figuring it out. Um, But yeah, I am originally from Philadelphia, born and raised, but now I am based in Bristol in the UK. um, And I've just been here for on and off um, a little over a year. And before that, I was in the Netherlands for about eight years. And so... What are you doing in, in Bristol right now? Right now, I am surviving lockdown mode. 
<laughs> but um, I am working on starting my business. I mean, I have Ancestors Unknown is my business that I originally launched a few years ago, but it's sort of been in pilot mode. And this year I decided to really just hit the pavement and work my ass off to make this business work on an international scale. So I'm dedicating all of my time to making ancestors unknown work here in the UK. So I'm pretty sure there are people who are listening in for the first time, so they may not know what Ancestors Unknown is. Could you tell everyone what it is? Yes, please. So Ancestors Unknown is a social enterprise, and we're working with schools mainly, but also nonprofits, universities, corporations. The, the whole idea of it is to introduce new audiences to family history research and other untold histories. So we have curriculum and workshops and other special events where we're just telling people how to do family history research, how to find their ancestors, learn about who they are, where they come from, be proud about their personal histories. And especially when we're looking at classrooms, how they write out black and brown histories where young people are marginalized in their classrooms and they're not learning about who they are. They're not seeing their ancestors represented in historical narratives. So mm. we're bringing these into classrooms so people can young people especially can see that their ancestors contributed to history. They can start researching and, and having some agency in learning about their histories and sharing those stories in classrooms and beyond. So yeah, we're an educational program, but it's not just for young people. I also encourage adults to research their family histories and provide some guidance in that process. So I'm really just representing the ancestors here. <laughs> so I've, I realized that I don't think I've ever formally asked you this question, even though I know the work you've been doing with Ancestors Unknown. And so what kind of really sparked this idea? I mean, for people who can't see you, you are a Black woman. Yeah, um, what all day. Really, <laughs> right? I mean, not just right now, right? Like, always. But <laughs> what really sparked this particular project? Yeah, it goes deep, Amanda. I mean... <laughs> I mean, we could talk all day about it, but I'll, I'll give the relatively short version. I mean, growing up as a young Black person in Philadelphia, um, I just had this idea that because my ancestors were enslaved, there would be no way for me to learn anything about them beyond, I, I knew my great grandmother on my mother's side. But beyond that, I just knew my grandparents and didn't know much about my family history. And that wasn't because my, my parents aren't very proud about, you know, our blackness and our, our heritage, but we just didn't know anything. Mm. You know, there, there, there weren't any of those stories to be passed down. And I always went to predominantly white schools. Um, and in that context, I wasn't learning anything about black history. So I just had this idea that Black history was uh, erased and mm. our ancestors weren't irrelevant, but were not able to be found. Like even if we wanted to learn about where we came from, it wouldn't be possible. So fast forward uh, to adulthood, and this was about 2009, 10, I started 
digging into the archives myself kind of in a contrary way to prove this theory mm -hmm. that I had that the archives are racist is just as much as the whole United States of America that they've written us out because they've enslaved and oppressed our ancestors. There's nothing to be learned in the archives about them. Mm -hmm. But I did that research and I started to learn about my ancestors in a mind blowing way. Like I learned so much about my ancestors, even in a short term. So during that time, I was working for an education nonprofit organization and I was already getting kind of tired of working on someone else's mission. I'm all about education. I'm all about black and brown kids. But I was thinking, is there a way for me to serve black and brown children without working for a white run organization, right? Mm -hmm. So at the same time, I'm doing my family history research. So that was the epiphany. And I thought, if I could bring family history research and pride in our ancestors into classrooms and, and introduce this to new audiences so that a young person can have the positive effects that I was feeling as an adult, you know, like if you can, if I can reach them younger, even better. So that was the, the spark to, to start ancestors. That was like how I wanted to contribute to the revolution, but it took me some time. You know, I, mm -hmm. I ended up, um, this is like skipping ahead, but the, the reason why I moved to the Netherlands was to um, get my degree in sociology because my, my, mm. my theory was I'm going to ground Ancestors Unknown in research. So mm -hmm. I did some research to like verify that this is a needed concept, that family history research is important for people who descend from survivors of slavery, especially. Um, and once I did verify that, that, it, that it's not even just a United States issue, it's not just an, a Black American experience, this is a global need for, for Black and brown people, uh, mm -hmm. marginalized people, to have uh, a, a proactive effort to research their ancestry, research their histories, and bring that into classrooms. Once I verified that, I was like, Ancestors Unknown is a real thing. And that's when I like stamped it and started um, really, really pushing it. It's been an uphill battle, but yeah, that, that's what started it. So is Ancestors Unknown a part of, if not a major catalyst as to what took you to the Netherlands? Uh, well, yes and no. What, what took me to the Netherlands was my distaste for living in the United States. <laughs> okay. I was, I was, just more. Ready. <laughs> I was ready to go. I was, it, it, this was in 2011. So Barack Obama was president. So if you can imagine, like, I really, like, if that was my low, you know, like, I, I just was done. And I, I had moved from Philadelphia to Oakland and I love living in the Bay area. Um, but that really wasn't it for me. And then I moved to New York and I, really did not like living in New York. I lived there um, for, how long did I live in New York? About four years. And it mm. just, none of these cities were sparking joy in me. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, how can I find my joy? And I, you know, I really wasn't thinking initially that I would move abroad, but I thought, um, you know, I was trying to think, you know, more, Oh, I was trying to have an open mind about it. Like, where else can I live? And um, I mean, this sounds crazy, but I was talking to a psychic at one point. And this was, er this was early in my time in New York. And I was, she was saying, I don't know why you're worried about 
dating and I don't know why you're worried about any of these other questions you keep asking me when you don't like where you live. You don't like living in New York. And I was like, I just got here. How can she tell? <laughs> and so I was like, where should I go? And then she says, uh, and it's, this has always stuck with me. You know, I've, I've even written about this, that she, she said, you need to think of the whole world as an option. And that was what that was really the spark. And I started thinking about the whole world as an option. And when I really was admitting how unhappy I was in New York, this was a few years later after the psychic conversation, I was like, you know what? I'm thinking about the whole world. And the one place that I could think of, I had been there on a layover for seven hours, not even going to front, did not visit for any significant amount of time. And it was on a sunny day. So I got a biased perspective, but I was, in Amsterdam for that short time. And that was like, mm, love at first sight when I spent those few hours there. So I thought, if I'm going to start fresh somewhere, let me go to Amsterdam and just try it out. Because why not? Why not? And at the same time is when I was doing the family history research and, and the spark was coming for Ancestors Unknown. So I thought, why not just do it? And the best way to do it for me at the time was to apply to school get this degree in sociology, get the you know grounding of the research for the organization. It all just kind of came together at the same time. And it was a perfect excuse to pack up my bags and, and escape America. <laughs> and, and I took advantage. And I can, I can see, having been to the Netherlands several times, it's very weird. It is kind of an oddly magical place. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the architecture, maybe it's old, it's the cobblestone, I don't know. But, but I will say that the Netherlands, I could see how if you get there on a sunny day and everything's just right, right? Yeah, and they're tulips and you're looking around. I know you were, you, were, you, were layover, you were in a layover, but like if the tulips are in bloom and my God, if you see a windmill somewhere, you're like, oh. It's <laughs> dreamy. It's completely dreamy. Right. And they're so laid back about it. Like, yeah. I, I could definitely see that. I am, I am amazed that you you picked a place on a seven hour <laughs> layover. But you know what? As many weird reasons I hear people picking places, that's not even the strangest one. So I at least at least you had been there, quote unquote, versus some of the other reasons why people go. You know what? I'm going to move to this country. Yeah, uh, I mean, I moved to Oakland sight unseen. I had never been. <laughs> Yeah, like, I don't even know how far I had been in the, in the U.S. I'd never been to the West Coast. And people just told me, you would probably like the Bay Area because you're an Aquarius and that's your energy. <laughs> and I was like, mm, all right. So I did, I had already done that. So I was already kind of on a crazy path with the way mm -hmm. I move and, you know, my life choices. So yeah, at least I had visited for a few hours. <laughs> um, so tell me, Black women living in the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. You were there for a while, and, and if anyone sees the video that we did with you a couple of years back, I believe you do mention, you know, the, the, the network of Black women that you were connected to, but what was it for your time being in, in the Netherlands, and I believe you were both in Amsterdam and The Hague, does that sound accurate? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Um, yeah, what, what, what was that like for you? In terms of connecting with Black women or just generally? Just in general, but even the community that you had with of Black women. Yeah, I mean, Black women are and have always been 
one of the primary sources of support and, you know, just positive energy. So there were, you know, just a few black women that I met when I first moved to Amsterdam. And those were my first friends and my first like entry into understanding the local community and getting a feel for um, what life is in the Netherlands beyond being a student, you know, or beyond being just a, a visitor or a quote unquote expat. So yeah, connecting with black women was like the key for me to understand and make a life there. So um, yeah, that, that was pivotal. But I would say that the Netherlands in general, like the, 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 the way social networks work there, it's very closed off. So it's not easy as, as a newcomer, especially, but I would say even for like people who grow up there, like it's just, mm -hmm. you know, not really um, easy to make friends and to plug in because people are closed off. You make appointments to hang out socially and um, you don't just walk into a place and just sit down and start chatting with people. You have to know them, you know? So that wasn't easy. Um, one of the first ways that I did start meeting Black people was, it was two things. I had, the, I had a blog. I started my blog, Black Girl Gone. And I met um, one friend through the blog. She's a Black woman. And she reached out to me like, hey, welcome. And that kind of pulled me in. Mm. Um, and then also with political uh, activism, because mm. I was protesting Zwarte Piet, the racist Black Pete character, the blackface character that is celebrated around mm -hmm. the holidays in December. So I started uh, participating in protests and going to meetings and rallies about Zwarte Pete. So then I plugged in that way. So I had to be kind of creative to, to find my community, especially early on. But um, with doing that, and because I was doing Black Girl Gone, um, and then also writing for you with the Black Expat, I started having this reputation as this black American person who's mm -hmm. <laughs> in the Netherlands. So people started reaching out to me mm. who were starting to move to the Netherlands. Like any newcomers, I shouldn't say any, that wasn't like the entry point, but like many people reached out to me who were planning to move to the Netherlands mm. as fellow expats and like, hey, you've been there. Can you tell me about some stuff or can we meet up? Um, can we hang out? So that ended up being like, uh, another way for me to plug into not only just the local black community, but also the newcomers who uh, were just arriving. And I've met so many friends that way, people who have arrived since I arrived. And with that, it was um, five of us, five black women who were not from the Netherlands and we were actually from different countries, but we were mm. like having brunch one day because that's what we do. And um, chatting like, it's a shame that it's so hard, just basically speaking about what I was talking about, that it's so hard to meet people here. And as black people, we tend to operate in silos. Like we're like, you know, walking in our little, you know, little areas and we don't see each other. We're not talking to each other, but we're all having the same experience. We're all mm -hmm. navigating these same challenges, whether we're new or we've been here forever. Um, how can we support each other more? How can we develop this community beyond the five of us and make it mm -hmm. something that's like legit? And we just spontaneously created a meetup group and 
uncreatively called it Amsterdam Black Women. And, um, and it became a whole thing. <laughs> like it became- I mean, I feel like I said this to the other day, you just got to put Black in front of your title to get the people you want to join it. It doesn't have to be creative. It just has to be like, da 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 Black, da-da-da, people. <laughs> Yo, and call show it up. what it is, right? <laughs> call it what it is. We are women. We are Black. And, and we're in Amsterdam. Amsterdam. <laughs> what the hell else do we have to say? Right. And we want to meet up. So it was a meetup. <laughs> so let's meet up, Amsterdam Black women. And we did. Right. We did. The community has grown. It's like over, th- it's, I think it might be even like 1,500 women. I don't know how oh many. Oh my gosh. Wow. And, it, you know, because we, we went on to social media. Yeah. I say we, but it was like other people spearheading it because I was just like going up at one, you know. Of like, course. You were brunching. I was brunching and drinking champagne. But. <laughs> Not really, but like, you know what I'm saying. So, yeah. but yeah, the, the community is just like taking on a life of its own and I'm so proud of them. Now that I'm no longer there, I just, you know, observe from far and um, I just love to see that they are support, like continuing to support each other, to nourish each other. Another thing that I'm proud of with that is that it's not just outsiders. It's not just newcomers. There are also quite a number of black women from the Netherlands that are participating mm. in the group. Because I think that there's sometimes um, a divergence between, mm-hmm. in, in many countries where there are newcomers and expats, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call us, who like have our own little circles and we don't necessarily socialize with the local Black community. But mm-hmm. that is not the case with the Black women in Amsterdam. And that's part of what I love so much about it, that we're like a much broader, holistic community, if that's the right use of that word. You know, it's, what's fascinating, you were talking about particularly like Dutch society could be close off initially anyway, as an outsider. And that's, that's a conversation I've had with someone else, um, not just about the Netherlands, they're talking about Germany. And, and what I think is intriguing is that for those of us, particularly who come from an American society, like, and I always hear this whenever I travel, we tend to be as Americans, just in general, even if we think we're not more open and friendly to folks. Like I heard that when I was, I was living in uh, Qatar and I was in the back of a taxi and, and I was talking to the driver and the driver was, I think he was either Sri Lankan or Nepalese. And he was like, where are you from? And I said, I'm, I'm American. And then I asked him, you know, who are the clients you really like or and whatnot? He said, love the Americans. Cause you guys always talk to us. <laughs> like you're, you're just, you're like, you're communicating. He's like, a whole bunch of other people are very like standoffish, but we're just like, hey, <laughs> like we like we know you, and yep. and so I, I can definitely see that, and um, I'm very interested, and and I don't know what your thoughts are, but you particularly mentioned, of course, which I think is a beautiful part of your of that community, that more Black women who were from the Netherlands were joining and are part of it. Is it? Do you? I don't. I'm trying to think the best way to word this, but. Is there still that initial um, distance that you may feel from Black folks who are from the Netherlands? In, 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 in the, basically, what I'm saying is, is that a cultural thing or is that something else? Do you understand what I'm, where I'm going with yeah, that? Yeah, in terms of being more closed off or yeah. less, less open. Yeah, I think so. I th- and I think that there's also an aspect of um, not... not a presumed trust like just because we're black if you're an american coming in like i'm not gonna 
as I, I'm speaking from the perspective of a black Dutch person, which how dare I, but like, <laughs> right. like I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of perceiving how I would be perceived as a newcomer. Mm. People would be like, what you know about being black in the Netherlands? You know, right. like don't come in here acting like you're one of us or that you understand our experience or that, you know, we're all just one big happy family. So like, I, I think that there is a, a sense of like having to prove that, um, you aren't coming in as an American with this like imperialistic attitude. Like I'm coming in to change things. Or I'm coming in to mm -hmm. teach you how to be, how to be black, you know, cause I'm a black American. So I think that there, that as long as we get over that sense of distrust or, um, I don't know, just trying to figure, mm -hmm. you, you gotta be figured out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do think that that is a legit thing. And I don't think that's, that that's unique to the Netherlands. I think that that's everywhere. People want to make sure that you're not coming in to dominate and you're actually coming of in course. to participate before they'll really let you in and see you, you know, where, as you are. Where I, what I think is real interesting, though, is that I think we're a little bit different in the States, though, right? So, I mean, I live in the South, like, Black people see other black people on the street and we're like immediately like, you make the eye contact, you do the nod. Sometimes right. you say hi. Like I, every morning I'm working out in the park and if not every single black person in that park from age five to 90 don't say hi to me, it's like something is wrong. So like, I do think that there is some cultural, right, nuances and not, and not even necessarily in a negative way, just... I think that maybe as maybe black folks here, we maybe sometimes be a little bit more open if we see another black person, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you are so right, yeah. I'm like, glad you mentioned that, yeah. Cause I, I do think that that's us though. Like we, <laughs> we ain't gotta know you, but you know, if I see something's going down with you, I'm gonna get involved. You may not, I may have never seen you, but I'm going to get involved. And you know why I was thinking about this? This is a crazy story. Uh, <laughs> the reason I was thinking about this <laughs> was this one time we were in this club in the Netherlands, <laughs> okay, which yeah. played, um, we were in Amsterdam, and they were playing hip-hop and some Caribbean music and some, like, they were hitting the brown, the, the brown and black beats pretty solid, right? And I mean, they love black music in right. Amsterdam. Yeah. And so we're in this club, and I was with folks who pretty much were, they were either TCKs or they were Amer like had an American kind of background, whatever, we're doing our thing. And if we were not the craziest ones in that club because they played, like they started playing Beyonce and it was like, we left the bar, like knocked people out the way. And we're like, we're about to dance in the middle of this dance floor. And it was hilarious. Like, Everyone was just looking at us like, oh my God, what's going on? And I was like, nah, man, if we were in the States, especially you got your group of your girls, you just in it. Like, you don't care. You're living your best life. Like you're free with it. And it was hilarious to kind of look at the reactions around us, particularly with the black folks who are black and Dutch. Mm, okay. What were, how are they reacting? I think that <laughs> I remember saying to someone else, the one thing that I will forever be grateful, particularly about black women in the States, is that one, they'll always support each other if you get the right group. Yes, and please. two, 
if you get enough black American women or some, you know, who have kind of that background, they'll go all out, not care about anybody. Like it's a squad moment. And mm -hmm. it was just like, it, you could tell it was almost like, these crazy girls are free. Like we didn't care, like we didn't care. We were dancing hard. Like we were in it and it was just like, we never see that. First of all, I don't think anyone ever sees that many black women just kind of run, <laughs> like, you know, take over a place. And yeah. you could tell, especially I think for a society that is a little bit more reserved mm -hmm. in certain mm -hmm. ways than we are, right? And so that's what I mean by free. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just in a, it was just sort of funny, especially to sort of see, <laughs> see it wasn't, it wasn't negative reactions. It wasn't a visceral reaction. It was more of a, we don't ever, like, we don't ever see, like, mm -hmm. that many Black women just, just take over the dance floor and yeah, right. don't, and, and not, and not care, mm -hmm. right? Like, legitimately not care what everybody else is thinking, because you're just in the moment. Yes. And one of the, um, see, this is, this is why I love Amsterdam Black women. I want to come back to the head nod thing, though, so don't let me forget that. Yeah. But the, the, we took over a movie theater, not on purpose, but a whole <laughs> bunch of us went to see Black Panther when Black right. Panther first came out. And it was this just like a, a collective of Black people. There were some men too. Collective of Black people watching Black Panther. And we did not give a damn. We were like making noise and enjoying the hell out of this movie. And, and the, the whole theater was probably like, you know, staring and a little bit uncomfortable or uneasy with the, the presence of blackness because we usually roll in smaller circles right, right. as individuals. Right. So it is just lovely uh, to see us rolling deep sometimes and taking some, you know, some power yeah. in, in our collective presence. But I will say, going back to the head nod thing, because you're, you're making a really good point that I actually forgot because I got into my like community, you know, and I felt so comfortable mm. uh, there and just took ownership of, of you know, my circle mm -hmm. in it while I was living in the Netherlands. But you're so right that early on, especially it used to bother me that walking down the street, <laughs> you, you, especially with men, cause like you get kind of used to as a, as a black woman walking down the street in Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, wherever you just like, you, you speak, like you speak to people and then you also get attention from, from men. Like people will be like, what's up sis, you know, something. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have never felt more invisible and unnoticed mm -hmm. than when I'm walking down the street in any city in the Netherlands because folks mm. do not pay any mind. And I've always been, I mentioned that I went to a predominantly white school, but I grew up in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So like I've always in all walks, like from it, while I'm in the city and while I'm in a white neighborhood, anytime I see a black person, mm -hmm. you exchange a head nod, like, mm -hmm. you all right? You know what I mean? Like, you surviving this? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. you know, like how how are we doing? There's always an acknowledgement, and yeah, when I got to Amsterdam, I, I, it would be a, a eyes would be averted, and I would be trying mm -hmm. to make eye contact, like "What's up, sis? What's up, bro?" But it, it would be like, "Oh, I'm minding my own business. Why don't you do that as well?" You know. <laughs> so and I was like really thrown off by that. It took me a while to get used to it, but like I said later on, it didn't even matter because I had my people. But the yeah, that, that was definitely something I had to adjust Ugh. to. 
it's it is so I feel like it is so very much American. I don't I don't know if it necessarily happens in Canada and I guess I got to ask the Canadian peeps, but it is very much American and especially you know, I think in communities where there are significant black populations in the country. And then like I said, I mean obviously regionally because I I will tell you like I'm in North Carolina for real. Like if you walk by a black person, somebody they there's a there's a nod there's a good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're doing all right. Like everybody's checking. And, and in fact, I jokingly said to a friend the other day, yo, so many people said hi to me that I don't know. <laughs> like I almost need them to stop. Like, <laughs> like within an hour period, I'm like, we don't even, you know what? I, but, but I realize it is comforting. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 I, and I love the fact that we, we recognize each other. And so I do think it gets really challenging when you go somewhere else and it's not part of the cultural landscape, right? Right, right. And, and then you're just like, I'm looking at you. Why aren't you looking at me? <laughs> Why aren't you Don't you see me? me? Don't you see me staring <laughs> at you? Like, My God, yeah. No, We're the so only good. ones out right, here. Right. Don't you see that? That's how I want. I want to like right. scream. Like, it's just us. <laughs> Say hello literally. to me. Girl, I remember this one time I was, uh, I was meeting up with a black expat um, who had written for us and she was, living, she was living in Southeast Asia and talk about, do you see each other? And I was like, we had never met in person. So I was just, <laughs> I was on my phone describing myself. And she said, Amanda, we're the only two black people out here amongst all these Southeast Asians. I can see you because you're dark skinned and like two feet taller than everybody around. And I said, I guess I should have just said the other black girl on the block. And we, we, you know, whatever. So yeah, I, it's really funny that recognition, but so I'm, I'm, I'm real curious. So you, you obviously left the Netherlands, you've gotten to the UK. Do you see the same thing? Is it a little bit different being in, 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 in the UK in terms of, sort of the head nod situation or is it very similar to the to Netherlands where it's just whatever? It's so funny because the last six months or so I've been on lockdowns. So I don't see anybody. Oh, that's true. I forgot about but, that. COVID. <laughs> yeah. Like COVID has really wrecked the whole head nod situation <laughs> and everything else. But, um, but yeah, I think that there is more of an acknowledgement here than in the Netherlands. Like it feels more similar. It's like kind of in the middle between mm. the United States and, and the Netherlands where people are a bit more acknowledging of each other in terms of black folks. Mm. Um, but I'm not feeling tons of love when I'm walking down the street. So don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But I, I do feel like there's, there, there's more acknowledgement than, than over there. Mm. Yeah. How's life? I, and I, I will preface this by saying we are still in the middle of COVID, so mm-hmm. ain't nothing normal nowhere. But mm-hmm. how's life a little bit different for you in the UK versus living in the Netherlands? So the UK to me feels more like taking a step backwards. Like I'm, I'm more, mm. it's more similar to the United States than I would like. <laughs> um, and in terms of it being more conservative, more uptight, not that Dutch people aren't uptight, but just politically, uh, it's it's more laid back, um, and there's a bit more freedom. But here, you know, the drugs that I like to do are not legal. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the the um, 
that just like the politicians are incredibly conservative. There's, there's racism everywhere, but the mm. racism, you know, embedded in um, the government is just so deep and, you know, it's just glaring. So it, it just feels more restricted here and, and um, more like American lifestyle. Mm. So I do think that that is a step in the wrong direction for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, like I, like I said earlier, there's black women here and they're yeah. an incredible community and yeah. black folks here are smart and progressive and, and, you know, making some serious moves like in terms of decolonizing uh, education, which obviously is right up my lane. Yeah. Um, decolonizing museums and, um, thinking really progressively about how we can address the racism in, you know, socially, politically. So I'm tapping into those networks and yeah. finding my people. I'm still new, but I'm, I'm working on finding my people and, and still doing the right work here. So I feel like I could do that anywhere, find the right people. There's always, you know, people doing progressive work. So that's what I'm doing. And that's, what's making me feel validated in in my choice to live here especially in bristol Mm -hmm. because bristol feels pretty progressive um in comparison in in terms of the black community um and um yeah so so i'm feeling all right i'm like you know finding my i'm finding my way i was most affirmed when in bristol they they pulled down the edward colston statue Mm -hmm. early on you know with the black lives matter uh, protests that were happening every globally, but when the yeah. Colston statue came down, that was basically setting the stage for statues to start coming down throughout the world. You know, yeah. And Americans were looking at Bristol, like Bristol was making American news. Yeah. And it was actually the first time people realized that I don't live in London. People were like, "Oh, you're in <laughs> Bristol." I'm like, yes, I live in Bristol. <laughs> now you've heard of it. So that made me feel like I'm in the right place. You know, like I'm trying to be in the place where they're pulling down yeah. statues of, of racist slave owners and tossing them into rivers. That's, that's my political, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's where I'm trying to be. Yeah. Um, and that's, so that's why, why I feel like Bristol is right. Even though the UK generally is not so great. So I think you've, You've definitely touched on something I know that's, and, and you've been mentioning this throughout, that's super important to you. Obviously, political activism, Black movements, um, social justice, of course, and political justice. What has it been like, you, been like for you this summer? I mean, it has been, you know, things have been pretty much on and popping since May with the murder of George Floyd. And so there's always an interest, I think, particularly for those of you who are American, who are Black, um, what does it look like for you, kind of the outside looking in? Um, kind of what are your thoughts? What, 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 are your, what were your emotions around everything that was going on? Yeah, I mean, when jo- I'm crying all the time, like for, for and about Black people, very literally, like I, will, I shed tears and it's very frustrating. And this goes back to so many times, like there's just so many Black people who have been unjustly murdered or imprisoned or just denied justice, whatever, like 
there's just so much. Um, so when George Floyd was murdered, I, yeah, shed some tears before the movement started, you know, like everybody was still processing. What is this? You know, it was like the straw that broke everybody's back. Um, and that was really difficult for two reasons, partially because it was really in the middle of lockdown, right? Mm -hmm. I am here in the UK, not in the US. In the US, I would have felt in a way like really compelled to be a part of that movement because it's, it's, it's home, you know? Right. But I felt like I'm so far away, you know, like what, you know, what am I doing not home supporting my people or, you know, participating in this movement? And also on top of that, I'm afraid to go outside. Amanda, right. I was literally afraid to go outside. Right. So I didn't even go to the protests that were happening when they started popping off here in Bristol. And I was wishing, really, really wishing that I was there for the time when Colston got pulled down. I was like, damn, I wish I was at that. Mm -hmm. protest and holding my own sign because I, I go to I've you know I've been to so many protests why when this like huge global movement is happening <laughs> I'm afraid to go outside so yeah that was really a struggle because I didn't I didn't participate in anything physically you know right um but you know I did my like writing and you know mm -hmm. I tried to um contribute in my own little ways. And obviously I think of Ancestors Unknown as a huge contribution um, in my own special way to acknowledge the ancestors and make sure that we're um, strengthened by the movements that our ancestors have participated in. Mm, yeah. so I try to remind people of that and you know, encourage everybody who is on the front lines to, to do what they're doing. So I'm very proud of them. But yeah, it was hard for me to feel somewhat removed and and a bit powerless um, on two levels, being far away and because of Corona. You know, I think that regardless, you probably should give yourself some grace for the simple fact that this is work that you do every day. And I, I found myself saying that to a number of people because I said, you know, when the, when the cameras are off and the attention moves or it's no longer, you know, social media square that's blacked out or whatever, the people who've been doing this work will continue to do this work. And True. sometimes you just have to pace yourself, right? I think for your yeah. own mental wellness and, and your own heart and the fact that We've seen this repeatedly, right? It's just, and I, I think you touched on something. I think the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic is what made the world stop because the world had stopped so right. that you couldn't say you didn't know about it because we were all and all continue to consume news at such a high level because we're at home because right. of the pandemic. It just pushed COVID to the side because it was such a horrific, as they all are, but it was such yeah. a horrific, and you can't say you didn't hear about it because you weren't at work, you weren't at school. Um, it's funny to me, uh, I was thinking about this the other day and, and you said, you know, there's, there's been such a long line of injustice and violence. And I was thinking, I had a conversation with a friend and I said, you know what's bizarre to me is that you know, when we, when we look at the history of black, women, black men and black women just in this country that have, that have been particularly killed, right, because of, you know, all kinds of, you know, brutality and, and the system or whatever. I was thinking about Emmett Till because his name came up quite a bit 
during this whole conversation as as one of a long line, particularly of mm-hmm. black males, but obviously we know black women are attacked. And I kept thinking, man, that woman that accused him <laughs> is still mm-hmm. alive though. Like, <laughs> you know, no, I think people- she recently died. Oh, did she? Cause I yeah. like how recent, cause I, I may have to go back and check this. Cause I was still looking and she had, she ne- like, you know, she said he didn't do it. And if she, if she really recently died, it had to have been within the last year because Maybe, I swear, so maybe I'm wrong. I maybe swear, I just wanted her to die. <laughs> God, I swear I looked at because she's only how old is she? She's maybe late seventies, early eighties, which I know is old, but you know, given yeah, yeah, how yeah. Old, no, I swear I because I think I I may have looked it up and I think she's still alive just because I was thinking to myself, you know, for everybody who thinks that the rights that people are fighting for, you know, it's not as bad as it was back in the day, or, you know, it was such a long time ago. And I'm sitting here going, yo, people who lied on people are still, <laughs> they're still alive. Yeah. Like, and I know that obviously you're a fan of history and particularly black history. And, and I yeah. always like, I, I always look at those photos from the sixties, particularly the fifties and the sixties, really deep in the civil rights movement. And just, you know, when people are getting attacked, and I go, once I'm done looking at the black people who clearly either have no fear and are just like, you know what, I, I, we got to change the system somehow. I yeah. think about the white folks who mm-hmm. are screaming, you know, especially when schools were being integrated. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about those white folks who are screaming at little kids and just yelling all these things. And I keep thinking to myself, that's someone's aunt and uncle or grandparent that's probably still alive. Yep. Right? Because this wasn't, this wasn't that, this wasn't that long ago. (laughs) No, not at all. It just, it just, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think about my mother. My mother went to a segregated school in Jacksonville, Florida, and she wasn't allowed to go to a black beach. She wasn't, I mean, she wasn't allowed to go to a white beach. You know, she had to uh, use the green book to, you know, to navigate Southern travel. So like, there's it, every uh, these people are alive, you know. <laughs> right, they are not our, our our family members who survived it, and the white folks who perpetuated it. They are still around, and it, it and it very much informs the generation mm-hmm. that uh, is creating policy and mm-hmm. you know affecting our lives on a daily basis. These people are still in control. I mean, very, very recently, and I want to say within the last month, the Washington Post had a, on their cover page, it's on their, it was on their digital site of a man who, I think he's, black man, 87, 88, was the child, was, was the child of slaves. Mm. Like he Mm -hmm. was like, because, you know, his, his, his father ended up having children later in life obviously this is how it all works out and so and so people are like wait a minute what do you mean we have people alive who you know are the descendants of people who were at least enslaved when they were young and I said you know I'm my my family lives in Virginia and I I always get this president wrong I think it's Polk but Polk was a slave hope so James K Polk I believe um, and if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but it's one of those presidents, uh, was a slave owner. And I believe either his, it may not be children, but his grandchildren actually might be his children. Cause he also had kids late in life are still alive. 
Mm. And they're and they're old, like they're older, of course, they're in their 80s, maybe even in their 90s. And I keep going to people, I don't know why you think like slavery was that long ago, but we have people legitimately who either <laughs> they were their parents were enslaved or their parents enslaved people. Yeah, <laughs> like absolutely. I just don't it's it's amazing to me. And so I think that when you give that kind of, you know, talking about this long line of just seeing injustice after injustice. It is just wild to me how long it, it's been going on, yeah. And 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 what it takes to move things forward, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And it, it. I mean, it's not just about. Yeah. I mean, we we talk about slavery, but we also have to talk about Jim Crow. We have to talk mm -hmm. about sharecropping. We have to talk about just general. Like, it's just it, generation after generation, they find new ways to continue enslaving or oppressing black people so it just it feels like a never-ending cycle because you know if we're not if we're not protesting one thing there's just a whole nother system that we need to start dismantling right so because it's all maintaining white supremacy so mm. yeah there's just there's so much work to be done but i i feel like one of the biggest areas where we are and obviously this is why I do Ancestors Unknown, where, where we're not necessarily acknowledging the injustice is where they have done us wrong in terms of our identities. Because like, mm -hmm. there are so many things that are clearly delineated. Like we can, you can clearly see that the prison system is, is, um, is un unjustly, uh, you know, imprisoning far more black and brown people um, or disproportionately imprisoning black and brown people. And, you know, that's, that's clear. You can also see in terms of education, um, the achievement gap is, is disproportionately affecting black and brown people. Like, so there's so many things you can like just look at and it's clear, right? Yeah. But there's something that they've done to us from jump, from day one, when they started enslaving us on the continent, they took away our names, they took away our families, they took away our sense of our language and our sense of history and where we come from. And that has disempowered us for so many generations. Mm. And it's something that we just take for granted. You know, like we just have this sense and it goes back to what I was saying about me growing up feeling like there was no way for me to learn about my ancestors because our history was erased. And that affects you in a way subconsciously and you don't even challenge it. You just take it for granted that your history was erased, that you don't have a, a sense of home. You mm. don't know who your great, great grandparents were. Like, and you, you, you just know that they belonged, whatever that means to a white person. So there's just like this sense of erasure of our identities and our sense of personhood that goes back so far. And so it goes down so deep in who we are. Mm -hmm. And it's such a wrong that has been committed against us. Um, I feel like it's it's not physically violent, but it's an emotional violence mm -hmm. that is not being addressed enough. We don't talk about it enough. I'm trying to like quietly uh, work on identity reparations. How can we get this, you know, how can we start addressing the gaps in our identity that folks very deliberately created um, to disempower us and it worked? Um, yeah, so 
Yeah. So it's not just about standing on our necks. It's about, you know, standing on our minds. I don't want to sound like, like I'm being too like in the star, in the stars with this, but it really is, it really is um, on so many levels of oppression that we need to be addressing. And I, and to your point, I think it keeps you, it, it isn't even just, it's the erasure and the fact that it also keeps, I think for many black Americans, untethered to the continent too, right? And not just yeah. Black Americans, but also folks in the Caribbean and in Latin America, because the bonds get broken. And then even, you know, trying to go back, you're trying to also understand something that there's been the schism where now on that side, for many folks, you're seen as foreigner, or so often sometimes in the dialect of the local language, it might be white person because, which means foreigner, but as, as someone who's coming in as a black person, you're like, no, 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 I'm, you know, I, I don't want to be associated with that. And, and I, 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 I think about kind of that, that, that pain and harm. Um, and then, you know, I, if you know me, I will get into white supremacy when it comes to colonialism on the continent, because it's, it's sort of like two sides of the same coin, right? Mm -hmm. I always mm -hmm. ask this question, I don't know what's worse. I don't know if, if your history starting, your cognizant history starts with you being dragged from a place that you've known to a place to be enslaved, or you being tortured in a place that you've known and where your people are. Right. Because really, I mean, I, you know, I always tell folks, which is why I sort of hate this tension between folks in the diaspora, I go, I don't think anybody kind of won in this lottery, like, <laughs> you know, because right. everybody's right. looking at the either side, you know, their folks could be looking at the content and go, well, you have financial opportunity more than we have X, Y, and Z and certain stability. And you're looking at the people in the content like, but yeah, you have your identity and your tribes and your culture. <laughs> so right. who won in this, in right. the white supremacy lottery? Right. We're all losing here <laughs> and we need to be working together. Right. <laughs> So I, I, I love the fact that you said uh, identity reparations because <laughs> that I think that that's, that's yeah, I, I think that when you know who you are and where you came from, um, that helps. And I know that many people are doing their ancestry, ancestry DNA. And I, from, from what I'm understanding, I think if you get, this is just my thought, I could be wrong. I know nothing about genetics. But I'm thinking if you get more black folks, like <laughs> in theory, I, I know exactly my stuff because I'm first gen. But if you get more black folks like me who know kind of their tribal breakdown and all this other stuff, that it might actually make it easier for someone like you to not only just find out, oh, maybe that you're Cameroonian, but you're actually Cameroonian, these people, you know what I mean? Like drill it down deeper. Because I think one of the challenging things that I saw with when people were talking about doing their ancestries that they didn't have enough almost DNA from folks who were not European. But I think yeah. when you get more folks who are like, you know, randomly from the continent who are like, okay, I'll, I'll give this to science so people can find out where they're from, then yeah. it makes it a little easier for people to, to, to um, figure out where, where they're from. But I was laughing the other day because so my pastor, black man, he, he was preaching and he was like, you know, my parents had always said, you know, my dad has said, I, you know, we had Cherokee. Mom said we had Blackfoot. He's like, okay, so we've got Native American blood. He goes and does his DNA, not a lick of Native American. 
but finds out, and he, he's your complexion, finds out he's like 45% Nigerian. I was like, well, hello. Oh, well, wow. Welcome to the West African. <laughs> I mean, they knew that they were black, but they, he, I, I think that there's just this assumption <laughs> that there were these other groups. And I was like, nah, you're, you're, <laughs> you're yeah. pretty, I mean, there's European, of course. Um, but it, it was like this big chunk that just, I think, kind of threw him off. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's 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 not too common that you have such a significant chunk from one region. region. Right. That's why I said, "Oh wow." And it it actually I have kind of like prickly feelings about DNA testing and people mm-hmm. are like always looking at me cross-eyed when I start talking about it cuz I I do support DNA testing, but I think it needs to be done in conjunction with genealogy research like you need to know more about the recent generations Mm -hmm. like before you jump to hundreds of years ago to like an unknown area of your ancestry when you're when you're testing your genes Mm -hmm. why not do at least a little bit of work to learn who your great great grandparents are or the more (laughs) right right? like there are there is information that you could learn to at least help you bridge the gap between what there's like, because there is definitely going to be a brick wall at some point, especially if your ancestors were enslaved and, you know, things aren't documented. So mm-hmm. yeah, you, you can bridge the gap, do some um, archival research, do some homework. And then once you can't go any further, then do the DNA testing to learn a little bit more. Mm-hmm. The thing about the DNA testing, like, just like you were saying, you can learn that you're Cameroonian. Mm-hmm. You might have one or two ancestors who were enslaved in Cameroon, but then you could have 50 ancestors legit who were enslaved in Ghana, Mm -hmm. and you could have four ancestors that were enslaved in Southern Africa. You know, like we, we Europeans enslaved our ancestors all over the continent. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we do a disservice to all of our African ancestors when we try to drill it down to just one region or one specific identity because that that's one of the disservices that they did. Like we we come we legit come from all parts of the continent. Like my mother did her DNA test and <laughs> it just spans the whole continent. Like there's this like <laughs> there's African people from from all parts so if I was to say like oh my ancestors are from Nigeria then I would be leaving out the ancestors that were from many other places so I do think we need to just like be observant or Mm -hmm. cognizant of the many regions that we come from and aware that there are a whole ton of African ancestors in our family trees you know you can't just drill it down to one or two and I think that that is a awesome closing point because we kind of started <laughs> on ancestry and we've ended on ancestry. But before we close out, I want to do this lightning round. Okay, I'm scared. Three quick. I, don't be scared. I told you. Don't okay, be scared. I'm just scared of everything. Okay, here we go. I'm ready. Um, three quick questions. You know, off off the top. You know, just curious. So, first question. Do you choose the UK or the Netherlands? The Netherlands. Why? Um, because it's it's a more carefree and better lifestyle for me, for my mm. my personal choices, the way I like to live my life. I felt freer in the Netherlands. Mm. Okay. 
Some I don't, I don't, I don't say that that's everybody's experience. <laughs> to be clear, you got, the, you know. you got the disclaimer. This is just for, for data. I don't want any emails. People being like, I'm not free, but I felt freer <laughs> in the Netherlands. And here I feel almost as oppressed as I felt in the United States. Mm. Second question. So summer's almost over, but it doesn't matter. What's the best summer jam? I mean, if we're if we're talking about just like a jam that just makes me feel like good <laughs> or because it doesn't have anything to do with summer. That's the thing. Like it's all the same for me. Like I just if I'm looking for joy, oh I will play Prince Baby on the Star. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, it's you, not like I mean, you can't go wrong with Prince. You could have basically said any Prince song and just been like, this is my summer jam. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like if, I, if I'm playing, but see, like, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm playing <laughs> Prince all year round. That's how I was talking about, like, what am I playing in the summer? Because then I'll, I'll also, but I also, yesterday I was playing T-Pain. I was thinking, like, <laughs> I wanna, is that my summer jam, booty work? But I, I was very much enjoying it. So, you know, it's, it's, it depends on my mood, not the weather. <laughs> T-Pain's on my workout list because uh, he's, he's got some good songs. And they're instructional. <laughs> Booty work is instructional. So if you're doing like your thighs and your glutes, it is instructional. Those, those booty songs, look, back that thing up, all that, they're instructional. If you follow no. up, your thighs will get the workout. I'm just saying. Exactly. <laughs> I'm into it. But yeah, I'm, I'm also playing a lot of Burner Boy these days. There's gotcha. just a lot. There's a lot of good music that's, um, that's out right now. Um, yeah, so it's a good summer for music. <laughs> Last question. I don't know if this is any easier or harder. What's one thing you wish you knew before you moved abroad? Ooh. Um, I wish I knew that it would be this difficult to disassociate from the United States. Like, there are so many strings that keep us tied to the country like just in terms of taxes um student loans all of these rules people people are like have you done this have you done that and i'm usually like no what am i supposed to be doing um and you know now more and more i'm very much interested in um denouncing my citizenship. Like I'm, I'm really researching it and seeing how expensive it is and seeing how all the red tape that you have to go through. Um, once you leave the United States, you are not gone. So that, that is something I kind of wish, cause I thought, oh, once I leave, I'll be, you know, free of all of that bullshit, but sorry, am I allowed to curse? But yeah, the, um, the, I mean, you've the, been the, cursing, so I don't understand. Have I? I just can't, oh, I'm so sorry. But yeah, the, the strings are just always there. So that, I, yeah, I, I kind of wish I had more of a heads up on that. You, you wouldn't be the first to start having the renouncing conversation, but I guess we're going to have to save that for a future, <laughs> future chat. Thank right. you so much, Data, for, for your thoughts and for hanging out on the chat. I'm so glad, so glad we had you. You are, as always, entertaining. Um, <laughs> But real quick, if, if you haven't looked her up already, Dana Saxon, you can find her writings on theblackexpat.com. You can also find her at ancestorsunknown.org, correct? Yeah, talk about it. Ancestors, yes. 
ancestors-unknown.org. Oh man, forgot that part, but it is ancestors-unknown.org. You can find that name also under Instagram as well as Twitter. Um, But, you know, till next time, thank you so much for listening with us. Thanks, Amanda. The Global Chatter from the Black Expat is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is executive produced by Justin Williams. You can find all episodes of The Global Chatter on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.